Welcome to the Ideas Have Consequences podcast and uh, this week's Q&A. This week we're talking about the woke mind, how to understand the woke mind. And I've seen a lot of silly people, you know, in the comments who, you know, who clearly didn't listen to the podcast and just simply say, oh, there's no need to try to understand them. Well, I guess there's not if you don't want to engage the world. But if you have any desire to engage the world, which every Christian should have, then you need to know something about the people who are in it. And right now, the Western world is being dominated by cultural elitists, not elites. Let's call them elitists. It's not a compliment to them the way elites is. Um, it's being dominated by people who are uh, driven by this woke mindset, and they are seeking to produce generations of children who are also possessed by it. And I use the word possessed because it looks like a kind of possession. Some of you will say that it's demonic possession. Very well could be, undoubtedly is, you know, in some instances. But these are people who are driven by ideas that to them are all important, more important than people. It's these are individuals. When we're talking about, we're talking about woke minds. We're talking about individuals who are prepared to acquiesce to whatever absurd policy or practice is being promoted at any given moment by the radical left. And they're also prepared to believe it and to defend it, to defend it vigorously. It could be mask mandates. It could be lockdowns. It could be mandatory. Uh, vaccines. It could be irreversible sex change surgeries for adolescents. It could be war in Ukraine. It could be digital ID, uh, IDs. It could be just about anything. And they're prepared to hate anybody who does not agree with them. In fact, that is part of the goal of the radical left. You see, what a woke mindset does is it it turns someone into either a victim or a savior. People want to think of themselves this way. It's very easy to create this in the minds uh, of people, particularly of young people. Oh, you're a victim. You need to hate that guy. He's, he's the one who has victimized you. He's, he's a white guy or, or uh, a white person or he's a powerful white male or, or he's black or he's, you know, whatever, um, to direct you at the individual they want you to hate, or they convince you that you are some kind of savior. There are other people who want to believe that. I'm a savior. The world depends on me. Everything depends on me. If I'm not going to do it, then no one is going to do it. This is what the woke mindset looks like, and these are people who are prepared to carry it out, to execute it without question. And often, we find ourselves in what feels like an alternate universe because you see them doing such things as attacking nuns at Dodger Stadium, um, at thinking that it's rational, even a moral good, to cut the penises off of adolescent boys uh, who think that it's okay to remove the the breast tissue from adolescent girls and to say that they're little boys who think this is rational, who think it's rational to go and line up in the street and to block traffic because they're going to save the planet. I, uh, <clears throat> a number of you have asked for book recommendations in, in the podcast on this particular issue. I uh, made reference to this book, What is to be Done?, what is to be done? Uh, not to be confused with Lenin's uh, a book by the same title. Lenin ha had read this. This book was published in, I think, 1863 um, by Nikolai Chernyshevsky. It's arguably the most influential novel in Russian history, the one that you've never heard of. So many of the influential novels that we think of, like uh, those written by, let's say, Turgenev or Tolstoy, uh, are very famous outside of Russia. They're famous in it too, but their influence was, was greater outside than inside Russia. This one had greater influence inside Russia what is to be done. And it's a novel. And uh, I recommended it because it's a, um, it's a glimpse 
into the woke mind. They didn't call it that, you know, in the 1860s, but that's what it is. The, you know, what, what we are calling um, a woke um, ideology is, uh, isn't new. It's been around for, for quite some time. It just takes on different forms. And it's hence the reason why Dostoevsky right here referred to socialist revolutionaries as demons, that they were possessed by demons. This is what it looks like. In this little book right here, what you'd find interesting, it's a, again, it's a novel. He gives you a glimpse of, and he's not making fun of it. He believed in it. Chernyshevsky did. Yet another reason why it's that much more interesting to us, his, his primary character in this novel is an individual named Rachmatov, and Rachmatov is a woke individual. He is a guy who is totally dedicated to um, his uh, woke cause, socialist revolution, uh, with a kind of religious devotion. But of course, he's an atheist, as all socialist revolutionaries are or were. But it takes on this almost monastic kind of quality. He denies himself certain things, and he believes that he has to, has to do this so that he will remain focused on the woke cause. A little book like this is a terrific um, insight into how individuals like this think. Another book that I would highly recommend to you is this book, The Closing of the American Mind. It reads today, it was written in, I think it was published in like 87, 88. I had to read it as an undergraduate, and it's very funny. It was an English professor who required me to read it, and I found it, you know, personally um, very enlightening. And she said, you know, that book has had the wrong effect on you. <laughs> I was hoping you would read it and hate it. You liked it. Well, Bloom, regardless of his personal life, Bloom was, was brilliant in his understanding of American culture. And I, I would recommend this book if all you do is read one chapter in the book. And that chapter is uh, a book called The Nietzscheization of the Left. How, what, what is driving the left, because it remains, it again, though it was published in the 1980s, it feels like it was published just, just last week. It is a profoundly insightful book on um, what has happened in our universities, what was happening then, and what continues to happen to this day. So there at least are a couple of books that you can go and read that you will find particularly helpful. And, uh, and I made mention of the fact also in the podcast that I was at MIT listening to a lecture by Jerome Kagan. Jerome Kagan was a, he was a he was chair of the Department of Psychology or Psychiatry, I forget. I think psychology at Harvard University. And in his lecture, and Kagan was Jewish, he wasn't a Christian. And I don't really know um, to what extent he took his, his Jewish faith seriously. But Kagan was to me kind of a Neil Postman kind of guy. He, he, uh, he, he had a very interesting, somewhat conservative perspective. And uh, Kagan was talking about in this particular lecture how we need to guard against individuals who tell us that we need to follow science because they're almost never truly scientific. And even if they were, science itself cannot impart morality. It can't. Scientism is extremely dangerous. Characters like this in this novel, that's who they are. They claim to be driven by science. It's what we're seeing by the woke left. They're claiming to be driven by science. It's Greta Thunberg. Greta Thunberg is driven by all of this nonsense. She's a modern-day female Rachmatov and a fraud, a fraud. We, uh, we have, will soon have out a podcast on child sex trafficking. Where are, the, where are the Greta Thunbergs on child sex trafficking? She's more worried about your carbon footprint than she is about an actual footprint. She's actually not concerned about human beings at all. This is the way these individuals think, and it's important that you understand this. It's also important that you understand that they are almost entirely ignorant of history. You may have seen the little clip, the... Uh, the Tome team put out this week of this a clip from a previous podcast of me discussing history and the importance of history. And I say that history is more important than science. Now, I don't think you have to choose one or the other. 
But if I only had time, our children were homeschooled, and if I had only had time to teach my children one of those subjects, it would have been history over science. Because I think it's more important that you have a moral core which history can impart. It can also impart to you, if properly taught, it can impart to you examples of moral courage of great men, of great women in history who did great things, who made a difference in the world positively, also negatively because you can, you can see what they did and seek to avoid those things. I think that knowing those things and having that understanding is more important than the development of a vaccine. Now that seems, may seem like an extreme statement to you, but I think that, that when we're just talking about living according to science, what kind of life are we discussing? Quality of life, I think, matters as much as longevity of life, doesn't it? I think it does. I think that's important. These are individuals who learn nothing from the past. They feel contemptuous of history, utterly contemptuous of history, or they weaponize it like a guy like Yuval Noah Harari. Harari, I wouldn't call woke. Um, he is definitely absolutely possessive of his ideology. There's, there's no doubt about that. But this is a guy who claims to be driven completely by science. He has no regard for human beings. He is, he is uh, possibly a sociopath. I, I don't know, but he certainly comes off like that. And, um, and he has weaponized history. He is a historian, but he really spends most of his time discussing the future. He's, his predictions for the future. He claims to be sort of a, a, a scientific version of Nostradamus. Point being, history itself can be weaponized and often is to push a modern agenda. So this is something that you have to understand when you are engaging with the woke mind. Um, these are individuals who, who are, they're self-righteous. And self-righteousness, it is often mistakenly assumed as a product of of the Christian faith. My generation will recall Dana Carvey's Saturday Night Live character, the church lady. You know, it was always just full of her own, you know, she, she was very funny and uh, often full of her own, it was Dana Carvey, wasn't it? I think it was. He was full of her own self-righteousness that is often attached to the Christian faith or to some other religion. Self-righteousness has no place in the Christian faith. It does not. It, 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 the term itself actually contradicts the Christian faith. There is no righteousness in you. Read Romans 3. Together they've turned aside. Together they've been, become worthless. There's no righteousness in us. We have to seek that you know, from, from, from outside. We have to seek that from God himself. Self-righteousness is a product of the wicked human heart. It's my way. It's why often we love the law, because we love to be able to say, I'm better than you. I'm better than you because I adhere to the law. I can hold my lapels and say, well, I haven't done that. I haven't done that. I'm better than you. I can think that in my heart. It's the Pharisee standing next to the tax collector in Scripture, excuse me, as they're both there before God. The tax collector says to himself, you know, I'm, I'm unworthy. And the other guy stands there and goes, I'm glad I'm not like him. <clears throat> this is, uh, is self-righteousness. This is what this looks like. We have something I could drink over there. I forgot to bring my coffee. But uh, anyway, the, the woke mindset is 100% uh, driven by this, uh, this kind of self-righteousness. It's just a, it's a real thing. It is a, it is a big thing, and you, you need to understand that. They're also utopians. They're utopians. Utopians have killed more people. Thank you, sir. Utopians have killed more people. than all other religions <clears throat> combined. And utopianism is a kind of religion. It has the trappings of religion about it. So much so that Lev Kapilev, his book is right here, um, which is titled The Education of a True Believer. Excuse me, Education of True Believers right here. This is a, his other book, part of a trilogy called um, <clears throat> To Be Preserved Forever. He says this, and again, he was a socialist revolutionary, possessed of a kind of woke mindset. But he, 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 he converted later in life, at least he converted away from the communist ideology that had dominated his thinking for so long. 
And looking back on his young self, this is what he said, we were raised the fanatical adepts of a new creed, the only true religion of scientific socialism, you know, the pretense of science. The party became our church militant, bequeathing to all mankind eternal salvation, eternal uh, peace, and the bliss of an earthly paradise, utopia. The works of Marx, Engels, and Lenin were accepted as holy writ, and Stalin was the infallible high priest. Has a very strong religious overtones. This is what he was saying, is that we became, we were atheists who adopted a secular religion. We became the very thing that we said that we hated. And, and that makes me think of, I'll, I'm sure I'll quote it wrongly, but G.K. Chesterton said something to this effect. It isn't when man stops believing in God, he believes in nothing. He'll believe in anything. He'll believe in anything. I actually think I stuck the landing on that. I think I, think I actually got that right. Um, G.K. Chesterton, that quotation of his applies to the woke mindset. They are now prepared to believe anything. They're prepared to believe absolute absurdity if that is what is coming down from on high, and it is. If they tell you that up is down, you believe that. If they tell you that down is up, you believe that. If they tell you that a woman is a man and a man is a woman, you believe that. So sometimes these are individuals that it's almost impossible to talk to, but not always. And that's why it is important for us. I don't want to say know thy enemy. Some of these people are enemies. There's no question that some of them are, but not all of them. Some of them are just deeply deceived young people who are looking for purpose in their life and they think they found it. So now we open the floor for questions. And by the way, I encourage you to submit your questions. We, we've gathered questions from across all social media platforms. Zachary is here off camera to ask some of these questions, I know that some of you wanted to put him on screen, but he says, look, all I'm doing is just looking down <laughs> at the notes, uh, hardly, hardly worth having me, you know, on the podcast itself. But again, please submit your questions. And if they're, they're thoughtful, good questions that are on topic, we will try to get them answered during this Q&A. Fire away. Okay, so our first question here is from Cindy, and it is, how did woke culture get its beginnings? Those kind of questions are tough. It's a good question, Cindy, but it's like saying <clears throat> that World War I, which is often alleged, that World War I started with the assassination of the Archduke in Sarajevo. Well, no, it actually started with the Franco-Prussian War in 1870-71. It actually goes back to the Napoleonic era. You know, it, trying to find an absolute beginning of something like this is, uh, is very difficult. I will say this, that wokedom has its roots, our modern day iteration of it has its roots in uh, of socialism, in Marxism, a, a very militant, socialism is a very militant strain of socialism. Did I say that right? Marxism is a militant strain of socialism. If, if I didn't say that, that's what I, what I meant to say. And so that has been around with us since about the mid-19th century. It hasn't really had a... The, the U.S., the United States has been largely um, protected from this uh, and for, you know, 150 years because the Christian faith has been very robust in America. And... The result of that has been that socialist thinking has been subjected to withering uh, review, cross-examination, and attacks, quite rightfully so, from people who are of a Judeo-Christian, a thoughtful, well-grounded, well-educated Judeo-Christian perspective. So while that mindset has wrecked so much of the rest of the world and, and uh, now threatens to wreck the United States, it hadn't had gotten much traction in the United States until the thinking of guys like uh, uh, Georg Lukács, the Hungarian Marxist theorist, and um, Antonio Gramsci, the Italian Marxist theorist, until their thinking, both of those guys were mainly writing in the 
you know, the 1920s and the 1930s, uh, Lukash a little more than that, a little beyond that. But their thinking started gaining ground in the U.S., I would say, really in the 1980s. And it's really picked up steam in about the last 15 years. It's what's driving this idea of everybody is a victim who isn't a white male. Um, it's, it's where intersectionality comes from. It is, it is the thinking that seeks to turn the whole culture upside down. You know, Alexander Solzhenitsyn made this statement, you know, the Nobel Prize winner, 1974, 75, uh, a Nobel Prize for Literature winner, Russian dissident. He said this, the whole of communist thinking is to destroy your civilization. It is to destroy your civilization. And they will do it any way that they can. And one of the ways to do that is to pervert the thinking of children or to pervert the thinking of young people in universities. It grieves me, and it has grieved me for 30 years, how many parents pay big money to have their own children turned against them. You're, pay, you're, you're, you're paying for it. When you send your kids to public schools, when you send them to bad private schools, when you send them to state universities, you're paying for the privilege of having your child turned against you. That is what's happening in a, in a, uh, uh, on, a, on an enormous scale. And now we're, the, the result is that we're seeing it penetrate the culture in a, in, a, in a much bigger way because those young people are coming into positions of influence and power. They're not all the age of Greta Thunberg. Some of them are, are much older than that. And, uh, but as for the absolute beginning of this, I would say in the United States, it really started to gain momentum in the 1980s. That said, what I'm calling a woke mindset it is not just strictly a Marxist mindset. This sort of stuff has been going on since time immemorial insofar as that there have always been people who are prepared to put ideas above human beings. They are prepared to see their agenda as more important than real life. And, uh, and so we're seeing it with guys like, say, Bill Gates, which is slightly different from some of what we're seeing happening in the culture because Bill Gates, is he a Marxist? No, he's a billionaire. By definition, you cannot be a Marxist and a billionaire. At least you can't be so consistently, right? But the guy's absolutely driven by uh, um, an ideology that we would, we would call woke at some level. Next question. Next question is from Delbert, and the question is this. He says, I live in the Bible Belt, and even though there are hundreds of churches to choose from, none are really willing to touch on cultural issues. It seems like many of the most outspoken churches are in places like California and Oregon. Why is that? Uh, some of the most outspoken <clears throat> churches are in uh, places like California and Oregon. I, too, have noticed this, Delbert. I'll, I'll start in, uh, in, in, in reverse uh, with your questions. Um, I also have noticed this, and I think the reason for that is because real churches that don't cave to the culture that are in, let's say, blue states, blue cities, if they are to thrive, they have to really plant their flag and be quite outspoken about who they are and what they represent. For instance, some years ago I was in China, and uh, it was Easter Sunday, and so, uh, or maybe it was Palm Sunday, I, I can't remember, but I went to a Chinese church. The church was under assault from the Chinese government in order to me to, to even go to that church. The, the Chinese soldiers stood outside the church and took my passport and wrote down my name. I was never allowed back into that country. There were some other things that occurred when I was there. The Chinese followed me around, but, uh, but they've never allowed me back in the country, and I've tried to go back. But what I encountered in that church was a form of worship I've never seen anywhere in the West. And that's because it cost them something to go to church. There was no social benefit to pew sitting. Politicians still, still who are running for office in the American South, they want to be seen pictured, you know, um, singing in the choir, holding their Bible, standing outside the church because it plays to a conservative audience. China, there's no social benefit to going there. It isn't a place you go to network. It's a place where if it's known you go there, you might be dragged away in the middle of the night. So churches that are in, that's kind of an extreme example, but churches that are in hostile environments, 
if they're really word centric, they tend to be tougher, much more resilient. In the South, where there's still a lot of people, it's changing, uh, it's changed a lot, but in the South where there are a lot of people who, um, who say that they're Christians and where it's still very socially accepted to go to church on Sunday, it's easier to be milk toast. That's one of the reasons. And so Delbert being in the, uh, being in the, the South, trying to find a, uh, a good church sometimes can be very hard because of that. Next question. This is a question from Aaron, and he says, Canadian here, I am a gay man who lived a sinful lifestyle for many years. Because of this, I have a few trans friends who are wondering where I've been. I don't know how to tell them they are living in sin, and how do I engage? Well, first of all, Aaron, let me, let me, let me say this to you. Um, praise God. Um, his grace and his mercy are very real, and I'm sure you know that in your, in your own life. And um, God's grace is sufficient for you. It is sufficient for you. It is sufficient to cover my sins. It is sufficient to cover your sins. And so I say, welcome home. Welcome home. Um, and I look forward to meeting, if not here on this earth and one day in heaven, and we'll have a good conversation. Um, I commend you for wanting to engage your friends in conversation about this. I would say, Aaron, that as much as possible, try to get them into Scripture. Now, they will undoubtedly resist this, but I've done this with some very famous atheists, both publicly and privately, some which are stories that I've never been related, uh, excuse me, been able to relate, and maybe I never will be. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. But the reason I think it's very important to do that is because it removes it from just being your opinion, or at least what they perceive as you against them, the force of your personality against them, your politics versus their politics. Try as much as possible not to make it about you versus them. Let them wrestle with Scripture. Get them, in, get them into Scripture and let them wrestle with that. Sometimes I find when I, I for years, maybe 20 years, taught a, um, well, I guess, I guess over time it changed and there were a lot more believers who began attending. But for, I don't know, maybe 10 years, I taught a Bible study that was heavily attended by non-Christians. And you say, wow, how did you do that? The way I, I, I did it was that I approached the Bible just as literature, just as literature, because I know that it is as sharp as a two-edged sword. And so instead of, and I, I, instead of approaching it as a holy book, rather what I did was I, I sought to demystify it and say, let's read this ancient literature. Let's take a look at what it says. It's a very interesting, very famous book that you've all heard of. You've all heard of the Bible. And uh, maybe you'd like to know something about it and some of uh, what it has to say and some of the ideas. And then I would teach through it, book by book, verse by verse. And the impact of that was fascinating because you saw a lot of these students, college and high school age, coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And it was because I didn't make it about me versus them. I let them wrestle with what the text itself had to say. I didn't feel the need to pound it home any further than what the, uh, we, the authors of these particular books had to say. Try to get them in there and then, of course, be praying for them and pray for wisdom and how to engage them. Pray for wisdom. God will give you that wisdom. If scripture tells us, is it Matthew 10? I think it's Matthew 10. It says he'll give you the words to say. I'm just going off the top of my head here, people. But anyway, I think, I think that's there. That's, um, that's in there. I know it is in scripture somewhere. Next question. Next question is from Carrie, and she asks, how do you undo years of brainwashing? <clears throat> oh, wow. It's interesting. I was looking for a book um, today, uh, this morning online, and I came across a book that was about how to deprogram people who have been brainwashed. I think that was, those are the very words, something about deprogramming and brainwashing. Don't know if the book is any good. I couldn't tell you who wrote it or even its, um, um, you know, precisely its title. Um, there are people who have, who specialize in this kind of thing. I am not one of them. Uh, I have certainly had my dealings with individuals 
like this, and I would like to say that I've had some measure of success with them, but it's hard for me to say with with any any authority that I know the way to deprogram people who are coming. And there are degrees of that, aren't there? There are degrees of brainwashing. We could be talking about somebody who's coming out of a, a, a cult, which wokeness is a cult, but they might be somebody who's coming out of, you know, of, I don't know, uh, some, some kind of, uh, I remember, you know, when I was younger, like Moonies, you know, were a, were a big thing and Hare Krishnas and this, this sort of thing, which you used to see hilariously um, at airports. The movie Airplane dealt with them very effectively. But it's hard for me to answer that question. I am, I am not sure. I'm sure a little bit of online research will take you in a good direction, but make sure that what you're looking for is a Christian direction. Okay, so we have um, two questions here that are quite related from Roisin. It is, um, how do you view and define social justice, and what does a balanced view of that look like? And then the related question to that is, what are some ways that we can be socially aware and alert to injustice without buying into the extremes of the woke mindset? Roisin. Sounds vaguely familiar. (laughs) Sounds like a name you might encounter in New Zealand. Just a guess. I'm just thinking, I'm picturing a woman with dark hair, glasses perhaps, tech savvy. Anyway, <laughs> um, so run that by me one more time. There were two parts to that question. So how do you view and define social oh, justice? social justice. How do I define, let's start with that. How do I define social justice? Well, it is injustice. Uh, the, at least the way in its, in its, as terminology goes, there is, there is real social justice, but the term itself is injustice. It is, it is cloaking um, a sordid Marxist agenda. That doesn't mean that everybody who, um, who pushes that agenda is themselves Marxist. I'm sure most of, the, most of the people who believe in it, most of the college-age students that I have encountered, I dare say probably none of them have read Karl Marx. A few of them know anything about what it is that he believes, but they're being taught that whether they know it or not. And it's because it's an effective way to convince something that the evil that they are perpetrating on other human beings is itself for the common good, is itself for, for um, sustainability, which is a word that I've told you to be, to be very, um, very cautious of because nothing good ever comes on the backside of that word. They believe that what they're doing is for your own good, whether you think it is or not. And so social justice, the, the idea itself is that, is that in paying reparations to people who were never themselves slaves, nor their parents, nor their grandparents slaves, that somehow some kind of um, uh, historic wrong is being being uh, righted, that in toppling statues, that a historic wrong is being righted, that in in uh, liberating so-called transgender people or uh, homosexuals or the alphabet mafia, that some kind of historic wrong is being righted. That, of course, isn't what's happening. Something else is happening there, and it's all about social justice is a movement that is about the seizure of power but using morality as a cloak for that seizure of power. Next. Um, so the, the, the second part of that was, um, oh, lost it here. What are some ways in which we can be socially aware to injustice without going down those paths? Because I think there's a lot of, there's a clash between the social justice movement of people aren't, inter- the, the accusation that conservatives are not interested in social justice versus keeping a balanced perspective in the conservative mind of how to approach actual social justice issues? Well, I think you have to start with a proper definition of what justice is. And um, you can't do that without having, you know, providing some content to that. Um, The reason so many in our culture can be hijacked, their minds and their, their hearts can be hijacked and they can be steered towards a false social justice is because they are what I call Christian-ish. They only have vague notions of what Christianity is. They only have vague notions of what justice is. They can't give clear direction to it. And to me, 
for you to have a proper understanding of what justice is, you need to know your Bibles. I mean, our God is interested in it. He's a God of justice. The God of the Bible is a God of justice. And that's going to look quite a lot different <laughs> when judgment comes. And it will come. Yes, I believe in a place called hell. also believe in a place called heaven. There will be reward. There will be punishment. There will be the words, depart from me for I never knew you. That will happen. Justice will be served on that day. But for you to know what, um, what justice really is, it's important that you, you have to provide content to that to give definition to it. And that means you need to know the Bible. And most people don't know their Bibles. And most Christians don't know their Bibles. And um, that's having a devastating effect in our pulpits, in our churches, and consequently in our culture. The next question is from K Star, and the question is, I'm worried that the entire next generation will be woke based on what schools are teaching. What can we do to stop it, or is it already too late? Well, do you say K? Yes. K, um, I believe in a great God. Uh, as I often say on the podcast, I believe in a God who said, let there be light. I believe in a God who um, used Gideon's 300 to defeat an army. I believe in a God who, um, who changed the world with 12 disciples. That's the kind of God I believe in. So do I think it's too late? No, I never think it's too late. I don't believe my God has called me to failure. I think he's called me to obedience, and that obedience um, requires me to engage um, no matter what the circumstances or how unknown the outcome. Don't, don't be persuaded by whether or not it's too late. Not saying that, that you would be, but there are a lot of people who use an excuse, as an excuse not to engage because they say, well, it's too late. It's just too late. Well, that's, that's, that isn't for you to decide. We can't see the future. That, that is in God's hands. Um, you know, the apostle Paul died looking back on a string of um, bickering, tiny churches. For all I know, Boss of Paul was feeling a little bit of a failure. Like, golly, this, this hasn't worked out quite the way I want it to at all. Little did he know that he had helped change the whole Western world as we know it. He helped to, to instigate that, to change that. Sometimes God doesn't give us. I love what C.S. Lewis said. He said, a glimpse is not a vision. But when traveling on a mountain road by night, a glimpse of the next three feet of road might be more important than a vision of the horizon. A glimpse is not a vision. The Lord often only gives us little glimpses. He only gave the Apostle Paul a glimpse. Often we only get glimpses. He doesn't send down a fax that tells us the history. The Lord tells us, in effect, focus not on the horizon, but on the next three feet of road. You know what has happened with the woke mafia? Do you know what they did? They hijacked a Christian model for seizure, for changing the culture, not for the seizure of the culture, but <clears throat> for changing the culture. They created a mob of secular revolutionaries. This was first done by the Russians. The Russians sent out their Narodniks, as they were called, these uh, in the 19th century. Uh, if you've ever seen... Um, <clears throat> I think it's Fiddler on the Roof. You know, one of the characters is one of these socialist types. Um, I think it's uh, Barbara Streisand's movie, Yentl. One of the characters is one of these individuals as well. These, these people who went out to the countryside. Maxim Gorky talks about this in his own writing. They went out to the countryside to share their, their message of secular salvation through, quote-unquote, scientific socialism. They were missionaries of evil. They, they didn't necessarily see themselves that way but it's what I'm telling you they actually were because they were, they were peddling evil ideas whether they knew it or not. That's what's been going on in the United States. And the result is they've penetrated schools, they've penetrated Hollywood, they've penetrated government, they've penetrated every aspect of society. Why weren't Christians who outnumber them, why haven't we done that? Where are we? In the Family Life Center. I'm so sick of Family Life Centers. Bulldoze them all. Get off the treadmill 
in the Family Life Center and start engaging with unbelievers. So do I think it's too late? No. <clears throat> Guys, if I really and truly believed it was too late, I wouldn't do a podcast like this. I'd just go sit on my dock and, you know, fish or something. <laughs> just say, oh, well, just polishing the decks on a sinking ship. No, I don't believe that. I don't believe that. This podcast is all about equipping you, encouraging you, and mobilizing you. No, we can win. We can win, but we have to, we have to believe in a, in a bigger God and, it's, it's, and not just in our own cleverness and in our own you know, gospel coalition tactics. There's going to need to be <laughs> a lot of prayer and bringing God to bear in the culture. He is the biggest artillery. He, in our bat belt is, is the best thing we got. It's the best tool we have, right there next to the grappling cable and the, you know, the tranquilizer gun. Right next to it is, you know, God Himself, the Holy Spirit. We need to bring Him to bear in the cultural battle, and we haven't done it. And we need to be, you know, it's it's interesting. <clears throat> Zachary, who is one of my children, is sitting off off camera here, but he will know this is true. My wife and I, when we made the decision to homeschool our children before they had you know, gone off to school at all. So when they were toddlers, Psalm 127 was really our inspiration. And it says this, and I'm, I'm loosely quoting it, but Psalm 127 says this. It says, children are like arrows in the hands of a warrior. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. And the reason I, I really like that imagery is because the Hebrew that is, that is used there is uh, it's the Hebrew word shenantam, which means to sharpen. And I, I just love that imagery because it's the picture of a warrior sharpening his arrows. And we were of the view, we want to raise our children with the mindset that we sharpen them, we prepare them, and when they are old enough and able, we draw them from the quiver and we aim them at a wicked world, and we fire them off into it to be salt and light. Now they're adults, and they're all doing it. They're all doing it. All three of our boys. When we argue at, um, at Thanksgiving or Christmas, it is never, ever about a differing worldview. When I have disagreements with my daughter, Sasha, it is never about worldview. It is more like, you know, what we're going to eat tonight or what restaurant we're going to or what movie we're going to watch. You know, pe petty, trivial things. It's never about actually substantive things. And that is because <laughs> we stored up, you know, God's word in their hearts. We made them, we made them learn voluminous amounts of scripture to memorize it, to know it. They're sinful. They're not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but they've not been, not one of our children, neither our three boys nor Sasha, have they been seduced by the woke mindset. And it was because we didn't train them to, to think like that. We were determined they would not think like that. And that is important because we wanted them to, and, and how this relates to what I'm talking about here, ladies and gentlemen, is because we raised them to penetrate the corridors of power. That is what we wanted with our children. Whatever industry or field they went into, whether it's business or it's law or it's medicine or, or ministry, to be salt and light where they are, to flourish there. I told my son, Michael, when he was heading off to law school, if this just results in you graduating and eventually having a, um, a, a big house and becoming a member of the country club, then we have failed. We have failed because that's not what we're out for here. The, the Lord is, has let you into a, um, a law school like, like uh, Yale because... He's going to call upon you in such a time when he needs you. And that is important that you understand this. So think like this. Don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged. Every day, remind yourself of the God you serve. He is greater. The power behind us is greater than the task ahead of us. Go ahead. Question here from Fernando Cruz. He asks, do you think that the church is being silent like the church in Germany when Jews are being loaded onto the trains? Good question, Fernando. By the way, I like your name, Fernando Cruz. That's a, that's a cool name. Um, 
I picture him wearing something, you know, like this, fairly banana republicish, and <laughs> standing on a um, a Caribbean beach, and you know, very stylish, and looking at his smartphone right now and firing <coughs> off a question to us from from some sunny locale. Yes, I do. Um, Eric Metaxas has said this quite a lot. Eric Metaxas is the author of um, the book Bonhoeffer about Dietrich Bonhoeffer in that era, that period of time. And Eric has often made the argument that the, the American church looks very much like the, the, the churches of Bonhoeffer's era in the 1930s. And uh, I would agree with that. The irony is, I think a lot of these churches, they retreat. You know, I've used the example of Broken Square, what I call the British Fighting Square, and how the British Fighting Square broke. You'll find this in our podcast. I, I think it's the one on the Biden White House. I'm, I'm not sure, but you'll find it also in one that we will publish later this week, that we will post later this week, that is called, um, well, no, maybe it's next week. Anyway, I'm not sure, but... Um, I've used that as an example of how, you know, Mark 12:30 says, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And each side of that square represents one of those aspects of the Christian life, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and how we've, we've, we've retreated from the mind. We've retreated from engaging on those, those issues that are deemed to be controversial. And I think many churches have done so in the belief they'll be left alone. You will not be left alone. You won't. You will either fully collaborate with the regime as churches in every, every um, dictatorship or tyranny that has ever existed do that remain open, or you draw a line and say, I will not, I will not bend on, on these issues. And those issues need to be the kind of things that are in creeds. Historic creeds, the Apostles' Creed, for instance, the Nicene Creed. They need to be things that you say, nope, not, not going to bend the knee on this one. And to be prepared, you have to just mentally say, I'm prepared for whatever trouble comes my way. If they want to cancel me, if I lose my job, I don't get a promotion, don't get that scholarship, my friends, you know, unfriend me, so be it. Ladies and gentlemen, these words should frighten you. If you deny me before men, I will deny you before my father. Those words, those words resonate with me. And they're always in the back of my mind when I am thinking of denying him. And I have. There have been times where I've thought, you know, the pressure is such, it'd just be easier just to go along. To do podcasts on other things. We could do a cooking podcast. We could do a podcast on a great many things. Writers' workshops and all sorts of things, which in and of themselves are fine. But that's not my calling. That's not my calling. And my calling is to go into the belly of the beast. My, go- my calling is to go straight after the, um, the strongholds, as the Apostle Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 10.5. We destroy arguments and every lofty pretension or opinion that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. That's what I'm here to do. And that's what you have to do. That's your calling may not be your primary calling, but it is the calling of every Christian. I hear people say evangelism isn't my spiritual gift. Maybe it isn't. I don't care. That's your calling. You're called to do that. Oh, apologetics isn't, isn't, isn't my spiritual gift. Don't care. It is your calling. I will make a distinction between apologetics and polemics. Polemics isn't for everyone. Polemics is, apologetics is where you're defending a position. You're defending the Christian faith. Polemics is where you're going after the other guy's position, and that requires a different set of skills and abilities. I do a little bit of apologetics and and polemics on this podcast. Um, It is my calling um, to do both. Not everyone is called to do um, polemics, but you can defend your faith, whether you know anything about wokedom. If you know your faith well enough, you'd be able to defend your faith. You don't have to know Islam to defend the faith against a Muslim. Now, you do have to know Islam if you're going to do polemics against Islam. Engage people. Next question. The woke mind seems willing to grasp whatever it's handed without question, from vaccines to Ukraine to gender transition surgery. Do you see any rhyme or reason behind the things that are being pushed? Yes, I do see rhyme or reason between the things that are being pushed. And those are the dots we connect 
every day on this podcast. Let me remind you, those of you who watch and listen um, to this podcast, join our posse, as we call it. Join the posse. And you can do that by subscribing to our YouTube channel. We don't know how long we'll last on YouTube. Um, those, those rules are not like the Ten Commandments. They, they're amoeba-like and they're changing all the time. And uh, maybe one of these days we get kicked off of YouTube. So what? Um, you follow us on Rumble. Go subscribe over there. If, if you all of a sudden notice we're not posting on YouTube, there's a reason for that. So go and look for us on other platforms. Follow me on Twitter. For right now, that's a reasonably you know, fair and open exchange of ideas. And we're posting the podcast there. Full pod- podcasts are being posted there as well as on YouTube and you know, Spotify and you know, Apple Podcasts, we're, we're, we're putting them across all platforms, but, but um, subscribe to us and, uh, and join this, this, uh, this posse of ours as we seek to make a difference. But in the podcast, we're trying to connect those dots for you. So these, you will understand, for instance, as we, as we did today, uh, we just completed a podcast earlier today on Sound of Freedom, the, uh, the Jim Caviezel film. Why is leftist media attacking that film. It's not just about money. There's something bigger that's going on in that narrative. Why is it that they do not want to say positive things about a film that is exposing child sex trafficking? Seems like that would be something we could all agree on, right? No, apparently not. Is there any rhyme or reason to that? Yes, in that podcast, I explained to you what's driving the way they think on a subject like that. As for a number of these other things that we see going on, Marxist tactics, I come back to what I said about Solzhenitsyn, Marxist tactics are about destroying your civilization. That's what they want to do for the purpose of the seizure of power. And they know that the primary pillars of Western society, the primary pillar of Western society, particularly American society, is a Judeo-Christian worldview. Upon it, Everything else rests. Art, literature, law, um, our social interactions are all governed by that. If they can destroy that and get you to say that what, according to the Christian faith, is morally perverse is morally good, and get you to say what is morally good is morally perverse, they win. Because that's a way of, of softening up the culture for the ushering in of Marxist fascist ideas. And we're seeing, by the way, a little bit of both. That may be a podcast we do in the future on the differences between Marxism and fascism, which are real, but there's also a kind of symbiosis um, between, between the two. But um, that's a way of softening up the culture. And by the way, once those people are in power, they're not going to be pushing the, the agenda of the, the LGBTQ Mafia, the alphabet mafia, they won't be promoting that nonsense because they know it's uh, um, destructive in society. Is China promoting that stuff right now? No, you'll go to jail there. You're doing that stuff. You, they, are, they are actually um, cracking down on men and women who try to look like the other sex. They are, they're having none of that stuff going on, but they're pushing it in our culture via TikTok because they know it's, it's, it destroys the fabric of a society. Here's a little historical note for you. No society has ever fully embraced homosexuality and survived it beyond a century. And it's, it's I won't call it the entry drug, but it's almost the entry drug to the downfall of society because it, it, it morphs into a war on the roles of men and women in society to an assault on children and to the destruction of human beings in general. It just, it's just a, it's, it's a, it's a, a slide that just goes on and on and on until the society itself destroys itself, cannibalizes itself. I was watching a, um, you know, a little British Know, somewhat humorous uh, uh, television show, and one of the characters, he's standing before a judge, and 
he's been accused of uh, having done something wrong and he's a young man and the judge, this Greek judge says to his mother, I thought it was a good line. He says, we will not prosecute him this time, but you need to communicate to your son that he stands at the top of a very slippery slope. We are, we are not at the top of a very slippery slope anymore. We're about midway down it. The way Romans 1 would put it, God gave them up, God gave them up, God gave them up. Cataracts and a waterfall. Um, waterfall 1, waterfall 2, waterfall 3. We are, we are going over waterfall 2 right now. Can, can the, the direction society is going, can it be arrested and reversed? Yes, I think so, but it's going to require repentance. I mean, Nineveh, look what happened at Nineveh. We're a modern-day Nineveh. Nineveh repented. So that's what needs to happen in this culture. We have about five minutes, so let's see what other questions we have. Why does it seem like privileged white people are buying into wokeism the most? Because they've been guilted into thinking that they are racist. That's how Obama was elected. It's the only reason Obama was elected. It's a way for privileged white people to say to themselves, I'm not racist. I'll put a Black Lives Matter um, you know, sign in my front yard to show everybody that I'm not, I will vote for Barack Obama to show that I'm not racist. I will go and join the ranks of, of uh, Antifa and BLM to show, I will make a contribution to show that I'm not racist. I will go and polish the shoe. This is, you know, Dan Cathy of Chick-fil-A. I'll go and polish the, really wasn't the shoes, the sneakers of a black man to show that I'm not racist. This is all virtue signaling. This is virtue signaling. And, and it is because the left, they are absolutely racist as they have always been. Historical fact, ladies and gentlemen, the same Democratic Party that enslaved black people in the 19th century is the same racist Democratic Party that enslaves them via other means today. It is by saying you're a victim and you're too stupid to be self-reliant and to take care of yourself. It's just as condescending as you can be. You question this, look, look at what they did with all of the immigrants that were sent by Governor Abbott to Martha's Vineyard. That was funny. Those rich folks, those Karens, couldn't wait to get those people out of there. They had them shipped out immediately. They do not want those brown-skinned people the hairy unwashed in their neighborhoods. Barack Obama's house there apparently has 12 bedrooms. Could he put some of them in there? Sure he could have. Didn't. Isn't gonna. That's because these people are hypocrites straight through. The same as you see with, with um, Bill Gates flying around in his private jet. John Kerry, our climate czar, flying around in his private jet telling you that you need to not drive your car. These people are hypocrites straight through. You should hate, and I, I use the word knowing full well its meaning, and I use it with Christian meaning. If you think, if you think the God of the Bible it doesn't hate things, he does. And these are people whose, whose agendas are such that you should hate the agendas that they represent. You should 100% hate the agendas they represent because they are soul-destroying agendas. They hate humanity. And hell will be hot for them if there is no repentance. You must oppose these people. You can't sit on the porch. You got to oppose these people. You, you want a mission in life, young man or woman who's out there uh, listening to this? Don't join the woke mob. You're joining evil. You just as well be in the Nazi youth if you're going to do that. You just as well join the, the communist Komsomol or the pioneers as they were called. Don't do that. Don't become a brown shirt. Join a real cause that isn't for, isn't for earthly bliss and utopia. It's to usher people into the kingdom of God by introducing them to the person of Jesus Christ. Last question. We have 67 seconds. How do we drive wokeism from the church? Oh, I'm supposed to do that now in 60 seconds. How do we drive it from the church? Well, um, it may be that you just leave that church. I don't, I don't, I don't, I'm not necessarily of the view that, you know, you stay indefinitely fighting against, you know, a tide uh, of people who are absolutely determined to go the wrong way. 
A man convinced his, uh, against his will is of the same opinion still. Just, there are people like that. There are people who have bought into this woke ideology that you can reason with because they're at the front, they're at the front end of it. They haven't yet fully bought into it. There are other people that you can't. But I would say that, that uh, if you're in a position of influence, you got to get people back to Scripture. I mean, a Bible, excuse me, a church has to be about Scripture. You have to get people into Scripture, and the decisions you're making in that church have to be based on Scripture. If that's not happening, then um, you need to move on. Well, ladies and gentlemen, this is the end of Ideas Have Consequences Q&A on YouTube Live. Delighted you're here with us. Delighted you checked in with us. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast. Follow on Twitter. It's been a pleasure for me to be with you today. Take care.